Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Hujambo, everyone. <laughs> Are you speaking Swahili, woman? <laughs> I actually am. That is hello in Swahili. I've done some research and a bit of a hint as to which destination we're featuring in this podcast, Phil, which is number 14. Uh, and we are off to Tanzania. No, we're off to Tanzania. Tanzania. <laughs> I was going to get to that in a minute. Yeah, get to that in a minute. Now, this is not to be confused with Tasmania, which is my home state, and there are often, quite often, mix-ups, like a Pakistani cricketer who flew <laughs> to Tanzania when he was supposed to be in Hobart, Tasmania. So to make it clear, Tasmania is Australia's southern island state. Tanzania, or Tanzania, however you want to say it, is in Africa. And Tasmania has kangaroos and devils, and Tanzania has zebras and lions. You be, but you don't say Tasmania, so it's Tasmania, so why isn't it Tanzania? What's growing on me since we've been doing this the <laughs> I'm podcast, trying to change the world. You, you'll do it one pronunciation at a time. So it is Tanz, Tanzania. <laughs> Uh, all right. In Eastern Africa, well known for uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, of course, and the plains of the Serengeti National Park. In this episode, Mark is going to tell us about the wildebeest migration, which is described as one of the world's most spectacular natural events. Wouldn't it be amazing to see that live? I've seen the film, but... Well, he goes back. All the time, I know. <laughs> It's like, oh, it's wildebeest time. Wildebeest time, let's go. <laughs> Off we go. Uh, Jessica reacts to US President Donald Trump's recent reference to shithole countries, <laughs> which included her home country in Africa. So she wrote the top ten shithole countries. I know. And we'll touch on those, Tanzania, or Tanzania being one of them. And we'll explore travelling with a disability and feature one of the winners of our Travelling Writing Scholarship. That is all coming up, but of course by now you know the drill. Phil, we start off the episode with your quiz question. Okay, Tasmania. Tasmania, <laughs> a part of Australia that's close to your heart, as you've said, Kim. Yeah. We think of it as being a little island, but it's actually not that little. So you can guess the question I'm going to ask you, all right? How big is Tasmania? But I don't, I'm going to give you a multiple choice, all right? Yep. Is Tasmania about the same size as A, Ireland? B, Costa Rica, or C, Sri Lanka? We'll find out at the end of the episode. Our first guest is Anne-Marie Soulsby. She's a World Nomads contributor, and she spent a month doing a homestay in Tanzania. But she also gives us an insight, got to whisper this, into witchcraft. <laughs> Ooh, spooky. So I wanted to uh, improve my Kiswahili skills, so I was looking to have a an immersive style experience and I contacted like a friend of a friend who said oh yes my friend my family live in um, just outside of Aringa which was where the school was located so that I would be able to not only have someone to stay with but also to have a chance to practice my new language skills in the evening and weekends so I jumped on the bus and sort of you know, 10 hours later, there I was being picked up by somebody and we had uh, very little uh, ability to converse apart from sign language and a few words here and there. But, you know, I was uh, able to make my way back with him to his family's home. 
uh, where he had his wife and uh, three children. I'm interested in learning how to master Japanese cooking, but Swahili, <laughs> it's learning Swahili, it's not anything that's really crossed my, my mind. How did, how did you get to this point, Emery? So interestingly, Tanzania, um, they have 120 different tribes who all have their own language. However, the president who came into power uh, following independence, um, Julius Nyeri, he wanted to unify the tribes. And interestingly, his tribal language was uh, Kiswahili. So he kind of made it the national language as well as English. So what's your proficiency level if you were asked that question, which I have clearly just asked you? It's like when you go anywhere and if you try and if you manage to get a, a, a bit of a conversation going with somebody and you know that you can you can get the gist of what's going on and you can have a, a sort of, you know, fairly simple conversation then um you know especially in tanzania they love that they love the fact that you know you can you can have a bit of a chat and a joke and there's there's always something going on to discuss it's a it's one of the national pastimes to sit down on a on a spare log with a cup of coffee and some peanut brittle and uh you know politics or what's going on in the neighborhood all those things are fervently discussed especially sports as well all the football teams are very important we cannot let you go without telling us a little bit about witchcraft well yes it's one of those subjects where it's obviously been around for a long time and it's it's you know it is a form of religion um you can understand that if people have got very little in their lives that um you know, if the if the rain hasn't come for their crops, um, you know, that could be a serious situation. They may not have, you know, enough food to survive. And there are, you know, diseases and there's not so many good hospitals and all of those life-concerning situations. So people do tend to turn to what is termed as witchcraft um, to be able to give themselves some form of um, reassurance or, you know, um, to be able to kind of help them feel confident that they will overcome these uh, incidents and these events. So, so, first of all, I'm thinking very cliched voodoo dolls. It kind of depends on where you are and what's happening. I mean, there could be very subtle little things like I've, I've heard of before of if there's an egg placed under a doorway and it's got feathers on the egg, then that's a symbol to know that there's a thief around and it can be used kind of in a, in a, in an interesting way. Um, it can be used for, for political reasons. It's, it's used a lot during elections to help MPs, um, become uh, confident in their campaigns and that they will they'll win a lot of votes um it's used for not so good circumstances where sometimes uh bad things that happened are blamed on the older ladies in the village because they tend to get um red eyes from constantly being over open fires and cooking and boiling water and all those things so their their physical uh, appearance makes them look like that they have some kind of uh, spirits or evil possession about them and this can then f- affect their um their lives i mean they you know people have been killed for for that uh, reason and the suspe- suspicion that they're causing you know bad things to happen to the area but you know in in terms of comparison 
you know, Christians have done bad things, Muslims have done bad things, and, you know, all these people have also done good things with their religion. So it's a, it's how you interpret it, how you use it. And, um, I mean, it could be from simple things like my friend says that if there's a big important soccer match coming up for his team, he might go to church, he might go to the mosque, but he might also go to the witch doctor. Well, a great insight. I think you can probably take the duvet off and come up for air now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and Anne-Marie had so much more to share about the different tribes of Tanzania and local customs, but you can get all that in her article in show notes and a link to her blog. Now, next, Mark Smeltz. He's another one of our contributors, and as we said at the top of the episode, he witnessed the wildebeest migration, loves it, goes back routinely. And as they, mentioned... The wildebeest known by name yeah. now. Oh, Mark! Mark, g'day! <laughs> as mentioned also at the top of the show, that event, that migration is described as one of the world's most spectacular natural events. Now, I have been fortunate enough to encounter the migration at a couple different times, in both the Maasai Mara in Kenya, as well as, of course, the Serengeti in Tanzania. So depending on where you are and at what time of year, and of course all the safari lodges track the migration throughout the, uh, throughout the course of the year, see where it is. You can get live updates from anywhere in the world from where it is. And um, according to, I think, some estimates, there can be well over a million wildebeest. I think higher estimates are almost approaching two, but you know, of course, it's you know, varies with who you're talking to. But um, so at any given point in time, you can drive out and you can just surround yourself in these herds, and it's just absolutely amazing. The cacophony of noise and the dust and the sounds of the wildebeest grunting and shuffling, and then of course you have all the hangers on. So you have, in addition to the wildebeest, you have a large number of zebra that accompany the migration, and they're interspersed all throughout the herds, and they're just as compelling to watch as any of the wildebeest, and of course a little more visually dynamic as well. So the two of them mixed together, it's just a fantastic spectacle. Absolutely. Well, you were handed to us as an expert on national parks and safaris. So, Mark, what makes <laughs> you this expert? Well, ex- expert is uh, is a high accolade. Um, enthusiast, for sure. But, uh, you know, every, at least like every year I try to go to a new destination in Africa, uh, money willing. And um, so, so far I've visited uh, the Kruger National Park in South Africa and the adjoining Savvy Sands Reserve, which is uh, a world famous destination for leopards or especially habituated to um, tourist vehicles. Um, yep. As I said, yep. I've had the privilege yep. of visiting. I've been there, seen the leopard. Yep, done that. <laughs> <laughs> He's done yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. It's fantastic, right? Yeah. Unbelievable. And uh, and the Maasai Mara in Kenya, which of course is primarily famous for its migration, but also all of the attendant predators like the cheetah and the lion. And um, a little harder to see the leopard there, but certainly not impossible. And um, the Serengeti National Park and Tarangire National Park, also in Tanzania. Um, one of the... Uh, my favorite destination is South Luangwa National Park in Zambia, which just has this most spectacular variation in scenery with enormous baobabs and sausage trees. And then, of course, the Luangwa River itself, which is, you know, seasonally very different depending on when you go. In the dry season, it's very low, very wide open. And in the wet season, it's just lush and full of, uh, I think, the highest concentration of hippos of anywhere I've ever seen, possibly um, out of most of the national parks. And... Um, Another thing that I would say is especially interesting, you know, a lot of the destinations I've mentioned so far are some of the big ticket, you know, highest, most popular safari destinations in the world. Everybody has heard of them. 
But uh, some of the ones that are the most exciting to me are the ones that are right next to the cities because it's just incredible that these countries have allowed pristine wilderness areas to be preserved right alongside, in some cases, capital cities. So, for example, in Nairobi, Kenya, you have Nairobi National Park, which is just sectioned off right near the city, and you can see plenty of legitimately wild animals, including major predators such as lion and cheetah. And when you get the right shot, it's just incredible because you can see the rolling hills and the landscape and your animals framed up against what is essentially the city skyline of Nairobi, and it's unlike anything I've ever seen in the world. But there's also... Um, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now I'm nervous about going to Nairobi. I'm, I'm How far away? <laughs> That's what I was... My next yeah, question. Yeah, wait a minute. Because if you can see the city, the lions can see it as well, right? Exactly. <laughs> and in fact, you do hear an occasional story every once in a while of an animal uh, wandering outside of the fence line or, you know, getting into traffic or something like that. But uh, I think they're pretty responsive in containing them. That is a point. Uh, Obviously, I'm, I mean, from my very limited experience in South Africa, there are fenced reserves and then there are open range areas as well. So, And in fact, that's kind of a point of contention in conservation circles because the Southern African model, which is largely fenced reserves, including Kruger, um, has been enormously successful, and they have been one of the few countries that have been able to maintain populations of animals like white rhino because of private game owners who have um, private game farms, and it's all in um, privately controlled hands. And then you have Kruger National Park, which is largely fenced, and this model of conservation has allowed these species to recover and increase their population. Now, in other countries like in East Africa, like Tanzania, Kenya, you see the more popular parks like Serengeti, Masamara, they're completely unfenced. So the animals, um, in, 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 you know, in one sense, it's best for the animal because they're able to maintain their historical migration routes. So they can, you know, for eons, the elephants in Tarangire National Park have passed into the park and then out of the park into the dispersal zones um, into uh, like the Kilimanjaro area and even north of the border into Kenya. And these historic routes have been preserved for that reason. But on the flip side, you, of course, have pastoralists, small-scale farmers, subsistence farmers, even villages that are built in between uh, national parks. So when the animal leaves the national park, you know they often come into conflict with these villages. So that introduces uh, problems between man and animal. Usually animals come off worse in those scenarios in the long run. And just um, on mobile camping, you know, you mentioned <laughs> being able to see animals from the city of Nairobi. I don't think that I'd be comfortable camping. I oh, know. Well, can I, I just say my? I mean, I'm banging on about my Sabi Sands experience, but it was really one of the most fantastic trips I've ever done in my life. It's it's amazing thing to do. Do we need to play Toto's Africa again? Yeah, <laughs> we start off with rubbing hands and all that. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, the camp that we were in was also the most expensive yep. place I've ever stayed, and I'm going to ask you about that in a second as well, Max. Uh, but it was an open camp, so you had to be escorted from your room back to the main building uh, administration area by somebody carrying a rifle. And we also had a meal one night. We had a boma, a braai, a barbecue, whatever you want to call it, in an outdoor area which was elevated over the riverbank. And halfway through the meal, the guide goes, there's a leopard underneath there. And we're going, how do you know? He said, because I can smell it. And it smells like popcorn. (laughs) Leopard urine smelt like popcorn. I mean, there was lots of, you know, 
precautions being taken. And and that sounds kind of dangerous, but it was also thrilling. Oh, totally, totally. But do you, oh, right. are you talking Absolutely. about free, f- free camping, Mark, where you just sort of pitch your tents? Yes. So in lots of the national parks, depending on where you're going and where you're staying, um, they will have public campsites. So there are some very basic facilities provided, like a, a blockhouse of showers and toilets and um, maybe like a little kitchen or a dining room eating area under thatch. And then there'll just be, you know, like a little uh, field or campground area where you can pitch your tent, make a campfire at night. And, uh, yeah, these are these are unfenced campsites. So, uh, you know, Phil, just like you said in your Savvy Sands experience, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the tented camps and lodges across various parks in Africa are also totally unfenced. So whether you're in a little rendezvous or a luxury tent or, you know, a little pup tent in the Serengeti on a public campground, depending, you know, regardless of your accommodation – the animals are, can be passing through your camp and, you know, they don't necessarily care what you're in. Um, I will say that uh, one one difference I've experienced with the small public campsites is that, you know, there's certainly no bathroom attached to your to your um, accommodation. So you do have to leave in the middle of the night. So there is an added element of precaution and, and excitement as well. <laughs> well, we've learned a lot from you. We've also learned that Phil's got bucket loads of money. And if you <laughs> go to is. Africa and you smell popcorn, run. <laughs> Mark, That's thank up. you so much for the chat. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Um, Phil, we touched on safaris in an earlier podcast exploring South Africa. And as part of the research, we found safaris for disabled travellers or those with limited mobility is a rapidly growing market. And we it sparked our interest, actually, what it might like to travel in travel a wheelchair. Travel when you're in a wheelchair. Yeah, right. a, as an example. Super challenging. Yeah. We came across a blog, Curb Free, with Corey Lee and got in touch to gauge his experience and some of the challenges. And we caught Corey... Just before, believe it or not, and this is a guy in a wheelchair, travels the world, yep. just before he headed off on a camel trek. And uh, oh, this is through the Sahara. <laughs> and he explained, preparation is the key. Whenever I'm traveling, I really start planning any trip um, like six to 12 months in advance. So really far in advance. And that just gives me more time to kind of figure out like is the destination accessible or what attractions can I do what restaurants can I eat at and how can I get around the city ultimately and everything like that so it does take a lot of preparation but in the end it's always worth it despite all the preparation that goes into it you still have some pretty crazy experiences and I'd love for you to share them with us yeah I've uh, had a lot of crazy experiences and I think that just comes with the traveling as a wheelchair user. But um, some that are just like on the top of my head, I was uh, on my first night ever in Europe. We actually got to the hotel and I had a converter and an adapter. And so we went to plug my wheelchair in with the converter and adapter. And as soon as we plugged the wheelchair charger into the wall in Germany, it blew up and sparks were flying and the power in our entire hotel actually went out for about 50 minutes. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. How did they solve that issue? Uh, luckily, they never found out that it was me that called. <laughs> <laughs> and you got trapped on a burning bus. Now, that, that's a crazy experience, but that sounds like a super dangerous experience. Yeah, I was um, in Washington, D.C., and we were trying to take the bus from Chinatown over to the zoo. And as soon as I got onto the bus, the lift actually caught on fire and it started smoking. Um, And so I was literally trapped on the bus until the firefighters got there. And the firefighters, 
they had to carry me and the wheelchair off the bus um, to safety. And so luckily they saved the day. Do you get to meet lots of other travellers whilst you're doing it? And what is their reaction? How, what sort of interaction do you have with them? Yeah, I mean, whenever I'm traveling, I definitely meet other travelers and um, talk with them. And they always kind of ask me, like, um, I mean, they'll ask about the blog or what, I mean, what's like my favorite destination or what's the most accessible destination. They always kind of want to know about accessibility around the world, just because I think that's something that a lot of people maybe don't think about when they're traveling. So they always want to hear that unique perspective from a wheelchair traveler. Um, and so it's really fun to meet others and kind of teach them about accessibility and hopefully they learn something from it as well. And what about um, uh, accessing aircraft and other modes of transport? Do you get cooperation from the companies? Uh, we could talk for hours about accessing the aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, every time I fly, it's a huge debacle and uh, just a big hassle. And uh, it's really the whole process of actually transferring onto the plane that's such a hassle because I have to go from my wheelchair to a little aisle chair which is like a just a thin wheelchair that squeezes down the aisle of the plane. And so in that process of transferring, because I can't transfer myself, I have to be manually lifted by the workers, and they've nearly dropped me a lot of times. And, um, I mean, I've been literally thrown into the seat and, um, I mean, hurt. And, I mean, it's always just a big hassle and I always worry, like, will my wheelchair actually make it to the destination. Oh, yeah. You oh, don't yeah. want to be losing that. No, that's that's right. not good. That's yeah. not good. But none of this deters you. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's once I, I, whenever I'm traveling, I always kind of just try to think like, well, no matter what happens, like once I get to the destination, like it'll be worth it. I'll have fun. So I always just try to keep that in the back of my mind whenever I'm flying or doing anything like that that's stressful and Luckily, it always works out in the end. We'll have a link to your blog, Curb Free, in our show notes, but there's a photo there of you where you've been wheeled up to uh, say hello to a hippo, but it doesn't look like things went well. <laughs> Before we let you go, you've got to share that story. Yeah, that's uh, it's probably my craziest travel experience overall. But uh, I was in South Africa about a year and a half ago, and we went to meet this hippo named Jessica, and she has actually been raised by humans, um, and they feed her with a bottle, and they feed her, like, sweet potatoes and um, all kinds of stuff that's, like, really weird, but it's a cool experience. And we, uh, they gave me a sweet potato, and I went to feed her, but as soon as she saw the sweet potato, she lunged out of the water and grabbed the whole side of my wheelchair and her jaws and started like pulling me in the water. And so she was literally pulling my wheelchair into the water and her human dad uh, came over and he was like, stop, Jessica, stop. <laughs> it was a hungry hippo. Right. <laughs> yeah, but luckily she listened to her dad and she stopped finally, but it was a really close encounter. We will put that pic in our show notes. And by the way, there is plenty of material on accessible travel, which is online. And right now, World Nomad Sebastian is living and working in South America. How did he get to do this I in South know. America for six months? Yes, 
I've got to speak to the boss here. I, I think we could do that. We should take this on the road somewhere. Where are we going to go? Uh, well, I think you're wrangling with the boss for a ticket to Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which sure. is an hour flight here yep. in Australia. Um, he's checked in with some of the World Nomads trekking with him at the moment in Chile. Hey guys, I'm Yvonne. Uh, we are here at Torres del Paine National Park in Chile. Uh, we are in the Valley of Francis and have just climbed up to the Britannical Lookout. Yeah, my name's Drew. I'm from San Francisco. Um, I'm here on a two-week trip. Um, just take two weeks off from work and wanted to check out Torres del Paine for my entire life. So here I am. And I'm Corey. I'm also from the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, we're here, like Yvonne said, in Torres del Paine in Patagonia. It's been an awesome time so far. It's very, very cold. It's hot, then it's cold. You get really sweaty. You have to like take a breather and then immediately throw a jacket on. So it's been awesome. So Drew, we know you're you're heading back to the states in a few days. Um, Yvonne and uh, and Corey, why don't you tell us where you're heading to next? We're going to be heading up to El Chalten in Argentina, still in uh, Patagonia. We'll be traveling that region for maybe a month or so, not sure, and then traveling up through Chile into Bolivia and going up north through South America from there. Uh, and what would you guys say is the best thing about traveling? The more you travel, the more you find that like people around the world are all just people. We all kind of want the same things. We all just want to connect with each other. We all want love. We all want to see beautiful things. We all want security. And it doesn't matter where in the world you go. Like, people, people we're all just people. Thanks, Seb. We'll have a great photo of him trekking with the guys in show notes. But, Phil, before we get to shithole countries, <laughs> let's travel news. Uh, World Nomads has announced the winners of the Travel Writing Scholarship, and we'll have more details of that in a moment. 7,000 entries they had to go through. Travel writing, unbelievable. And three lucky winners are going to be going to Argentina. But before you know it, the Travel Film Scholarship will be launching. Yes, there's hardly time to take a breath. Check the World Nomads Create section to learn more. That's coming up in the next week or two. We're not quite uh, finalised a date just yet. And in the next episode of this podcast, we'll be all about the film scholarship and travel filmmaking, and we'll speak to one of the judges and things like that. Yep, exactly. Uh, right, they're on with the rest of the news. The Philippines government has ordered the closure of Boracay Island for six months, starting later this month in April. No, let's shut it down. That's it. Completely shut. That's it. You're gone for six months. Now, that's like two million people a year go there. So, you know, that's a million people. I've read something that's something like 700,000 already paid bookings for hotels on the islands. Sorry, nah, it's closed. Now, they've done this in Thailand. Well, the shutdown Maya Beach, the place where they filmed the beach, for environmental reasons there as well. And the same in Boracay. The pre- uh, Philippine President Rodrigo Duerte said uh, he's taken a recommendation from the environmental authorities and he says it's turned into a cesspool. And he's not wrong. There's like untreated sewage going into oh. the water there as well. So uh, that's just not an issue for tourists. That's infrastructure. Well, that's the whole point. The infrastructure doesn't allow... Uh, you know, for the influx of 2 million people. So they've outgrown the infrastructure. Outgrown the infrastructure. So they've closed it down for six months and in the same week approved the building of a new casino on the island. (laughs) (laughs) I love the Filipino government. They're really on it, aren't they? Um, Could this be the world's most beautiful and expensive public toilet? Norway has spent over $2 million building a convenience alongside the scenic Helgeland-Skystan Highway. 
The frosted glass loo in a building shaped like a wave overlooks the Norwegian Sea and is framed by the snow-capped Lofoten Wall Mountains. Is it one toilet or a block? It's it, well, an amenities It's block. an amenities block, yeah. Uh, the, hi- the highway we're talking about, the Helgeland-Skeidston Highway, do you like that? Is, uh, <laughs> Surprisingly, is- <laughs> it's rolling off your tongue, this episode. Top tip, I've written it here phonetically. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a 250-mile, that's 400-kilometre-long scenic route all up the west coast of Norway. So, And you need something like different six different ferries to connect to the bits of the road as you go. And, and just in Helgeland itself, there's something like 14,000 islands. And, of course, Norway, it's all fjords and what have you. So, you know, the occasional we stop... Yep. It's probably required on that road when you're doing it. Now, please don't tell me you're going to share a pic of it. Oh, yeah, let's put the pictures on. It looks fantastic. It's a really beautiful building. I'm, I'm sure it would be, actually. Snow-capped mountains in the background, <laughs> sitting there contemplating. <laughs> Richard Branson has purchased the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. It'll be rebranded as a Virgin Hotel after extensive renovations. And why am I telling you this, you may be asking? Well, the blonde-haired billionaire says he can't guarantee that the guitar-shaped swimming pool will be retained. Uh, Last episode, I told you about the uh, Qantas 17-hour long-haul flight from London to Perth, Australia. Apparently, Qantas and some other airlines around the world are planning more long, long long-haul flights. So, is it the end of the stopover is one question. And What they're doing to help make these globe-spanning trips um, without refuelling more comfortable is... um, well, first of all, they need to lower the weight on the aircraft, so they've got to ditch most of the cargo that goes on board. So they're thinking, what do we do with the empty cargo space underneath the floor? And they're talking about putting in, like, train-style sleeping compartments. You don't have to cough up for a business-class seat to uh, lie flat. Yeah. You can pay a couple hundred bucks more to reserve one of the sleeping bunks. That's it. That's travel news. Well, you may or may not have heard when the President of the United States, Donald Trump, mentioned some countries being shitholes. In fact, he said, why do we want all these people from Africa here? went on to refer to Haiti and El Salvador and not just... He didn't actually mention the names of the countries. He actually called them shitholes. Now, Jessica Nabongo is a nomad, a photographer, a writer and a dreamer, and you immediately reacted to that, Jessica. Yes, yes, I did, because my parents are from a shithole country. (laughs) (laughs) Which country would that be? Uganda. Uganda. What a really interesting shithole, though. Yes, it's lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you sat down and you wrote my favourite, my 10 favourite shithole countries in a blog. But before you got into that, you did do a little bit of research, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, my life, I guess, is my real research. I've traveled to probably around 25 shithole countries, including El Salvador and Haiti. What do you know about Uganda and what should we know about Uganda? (laughs) I know a lot about Uganda. Um, Uganda is an absolutely amazing country. It's nicknamed the Pearl of Africa. Um, It has safaris. It has um, a few of the world's last remaining mountain gorillas in the west. It sits on the equator. Um, it's the source of the Nile. Well, the source of the Nile River is there in Jinja at Bujigali Falls. Um, and yeah, Uganda has tons of wildlife, amazing cultures. There's so many tribes. There's so 
much to learn about the country. I mean, there it's endless. But it's not a shithole by the sounds of it. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I mean, I love going home because the weather is always perfect because it's on the equator. It's temperate, so it's never too hot, never too cold. That was interesting. You you say you're born in America, but you just refer to Uganda as home. Is that is that how you feel about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, I was born in the U.S., but um, majority of my family is there. I only have around 15 blood relatives in the U.S., um, but to put that in perspective, I have about 105 first cousins, <laughs> and <laughs> um, three are in the U.S., two are in the U.K., and the rest are in Uganda. So the vast majority of my family is still there. So did that make – I mean, when you heard President Trump refer to your country – and other countries as she does. How did that make you feel as an American? <sighs> you know, for me, it didn't really make me feel a kind of way. It's just like, oh, it's just one more stupid thing. Um, but, you know, I know the beauty of Uganda. I know the beauty of Africa as a whole. I love Haiti. I've been a number of times. Um, I recently visited El Salvador in October. So for me, his words are meaningless. Speaking of Haiti, it was the first black republic and you've mentioned that you've been there several times. You also say in the article that we'll share in the show notes that you volunteer in Haiti, but when you travel to Paris, you wouldn't think of volunteering. So what's the difference? I actually don't volunteer in Haiti. So my article speaks to the fact that I would not volunteer in Haiti in the same way that I would not volunteer in Paris. So, so why, not? Yeah, why not? Why not? Um, I think that there's this idea... Um, for a lot of people from the Western world that we want to go to mostly brown and black countries and we want to volunteer, we want to go to orphanages. Um, but people don't think to do that when they go to Paris or when they go to London or when they go to New York City. There's certainly orphanages in these places as well. So for me, um, in the same way I wouldn't do that in Paris, I wouldn't do it in Haiti. And I also don't encourage other people to do that. Uh, I run my own company called Jet Black, and we focus on travel and tourism in countries in Africa, Central and South America and the Caribbean. And a lot of people ask me, oh, well, can we do volunteering on your trip? And I say no, <laughs> because we're just going for tourism. Um, so I think what I want to push as an idea is that you should travel to countries in the Caribbean and countries in Central and South America and Africa just for tourism in the same way that you would go to Europe. So if we really focus on getting more people to go and spend their tourism dollars in these countries, then we can start to see more money flowing into the country. So to me, it's about, I always tell my guests, tip your drivers very well. Make sure you're going to shop in local markets. Where I can, I try to stay at properties that are owned by um, local entrepreneurs. Uh, I make sure that all of my tour guides are working for companies that are owned by local entrepreneurs. And to me, that's really how we can give back by sort of helping to inject funds into the private sector. So you've traveled to 22 of Africa's 54 countries. What's your favorite shit -o? Oh my gosh, that's so hard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I really love Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, I recently fell in love with Namibia and Zambia. But uh, Namibia, I mean, the landscapes are just out of this world. Um, Susufle, the desert with all these red sand. The sand is so beautiful and fine. Um, there's literally no light pollution when you're out there. So it was the first time that I was able to see the Milky Way. 
um, in the evening. It's just the landscapes are incredible. Um, in Zambia, I loved it because I got to do Devil's Pool at Victoria Falls. Oh, so, yes. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> not, no. not covered no. by insurance, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not covered by insurance. Now, we've talked about this on, on a previous podcast. Tell me, you know how you sort of jump in and then all of a sudden you stop? What, what? What? It doesn't look like Kim doesn't. A, Kim no. doesn't understand how you don't go over the edge. How do you not just plunge? <laughs> so it's literally a pool. So there, it's a natural pool, and there's like a little wall of sorts that blocks you. So like when you can lean over the wall, like oh. I leaned over <laughs> the wall. <Look. laughs> but you know what? Like it wasn't even scary. What I didn't like about the experience is there's little fish in the pool that are biting you, and that's actually to me the worst part. It isn't feeling like you're gonna fall over. It's those little fish biting you. So you're not bothered about plummeting 300 meters to your death, but you worry about fish. You need to get yeah. a proper perspective on life. Jessica. I know, and even even the fact Jessica said there's a small wall of sorts. Yeah, small, a little wall. Yeah. She said, "No, I want a great big fat wall." <laughs> Look, it's been absolutely great chatting to you. We will share your article, which includes some beautiful photos, including those landscapes you're talking about in Namibia. Thank you. You are very welcome. Now, we've just announced the winners of the Travel Writing Scholarship to Argentina, and we were there when two of the lucky winners were told. Hello. Hey, Claudia. How are you? You're about to tell me how I'm doing, <laughs> I feel like. I've got my um, colleague Beck here on the line as Hi. well. Um, Beck <laughs> actually uh, had one final question to ask you um, before we make our announcements. We just wanted to know whether you wanted to go to Argentina. Girl, you know I do. <laughs> oh I saw that email and my heart just started going like, I was like, oh no, what, this is it, what is going on? Oh, I'm so excited. You don't even know. <laughs> Would you like to go to Argentina as winner of the Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I'm crying. It's okay. We'll give you, we'll give you a little Oh my time. gosh, really? Yeah, 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 really. We we loved your story. It was one of our favorites. Mm. Um, Tim Neville has really enjoyed it. He can't wait to see you in Argentina. Wow! Thank you so much. I cannot tell you how much that means. Wow. That was Claudia and Madeline receiving the news. Marte was our third winner and their winning entries will be in show notes. But with such a teary reaction, we had to check in with Madeline to see if the news had actually sunk in. It's just starting to sink in right now, but it still doesn't feel real. We're just starting to plan our trip to Argentina and stuff, but I don't think it's ever really going to sink in until I, I arrive there, honestly. I didn't think writing could ever be a real thing for me. Um, I was kind of set on the like psychology track back in college, and then last semester I kind of realized that that's not what I wanted to do, and so I declared English as a major too, and then I just kind of spur of the moment came to Dublin this semester to do a writing program, but I never really thought that a writing career might be possible for me. So when they when they told me that I won, I thought it suddenly became a possibility. And just having the opportunity to be mentored by someone like Tim Neville, yeah, that's definitely a money can't buy opportunity. Congratulations all, and as you said, the next podcast episode is all about the film scholarship. Yep, all the details, everything you need to know. Before we wrap up, the answer to your quiz question. Is Tasmania about the same size as A, Ireland, B, Costa Rica, or C, Sri Lanka? Kim? I'm going to say Costa Rica. All right, the answer is all three. 
<laughs> oh, really? All of the above. Okay. No, seriously. Uh, it's closest to Ireland. There's only uh, Tasmania is 68,000 square kilometres and Ireland is 70,000 square kilometres. Um, Tasmania is a little bit bigger than Costa Rica. It's about 1.3 times bigger than Costa Rica. And Sri Lanka is about... It's about 1.2 times bigger than Tasmania, so they're all around about the same size. But I was really surprised. I mean, I mean, I've I've always thought of Tasmania as quite small. Um, I think what gives it away as being possibly a small island is the fact it's only got half a million people. That's right, it's empty. Yeah, it is. Like yeah. pretty much of Australia, really. Pretty much. That wraps up our episode on Tanzania. Tanzania, please Tanzania. subscribe, rate, share on iTunes, however you like to say it. Google Play, Stitcher. Find us on Spotify and iHeartRadio and contact us too by emailing podcast at worldnomads.com. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.